I'm Shauna Ritter, and welcome to WFIU Profiles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry occupies a unique place in American literary culture. Born in Kentucky in 1934, he has stayed close to his roots in caring for the land that his ancestors settled almost 200 years ago. One of our preeminent philosophers of place, a leading advocate for environmental stewardship, and a fierce critic of agribusiness, he first came to literary notice as a poet in the 1960s. Since then, Mr. Berry has written numerous books of poetry, nonfiction works, novels, and short stories. Welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much. It's an honor to have you here, Wendell. Thank you. Um, please tell me a little bit about your farm. We have a very marginal place of about 117 acres in two tracks, one on the um, slope of the Kentucky River Valley going down to the river and the other a Creek Valley mm-hmm. um, about a mile away and um, it all is problematic land from a, a farmer's point of view because it's either steep or it overflows and uh, so mostly we grow grass and trees, and we have a, a small sheep flock mm-hmm. and a fairly good vegetable garden, and we harvest a good bit of our fuel from the woods. Uh, when when our children were young and at home, we had a, a fairly elaborate subsistence economy uh, that included uh, milk cows mm-hmm. and uh, chicken flock and uh, meat hogs and um, so forth. As our family size and our own uh, energy has declined, it's shrunk a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about how farming and writing complement each other for you? Well, sometimes they fit together awkwardly enough, but... Um, the farm has never provided our um, major income. It has provided a considerable portion of our uh, subsistence. Mm-hmm. And neither uh, did writing until a, f- a few years ago provide a significant income. So I've, uh, for a long time, earned our living uh, by teaching or uh, for 10 years uh, traveling about and doing lectures and readings at uh, places like universities. Since my uh, subject in my writing has been farming, I think it has been important that uh, I have been uh, involved daily in my fashion uh, with m- both my own farming and uh, m- mainly in in uh, years past 
in exchanges of work with my neighbors so that um, farming has never been something that uh, has been remote from my daily mm-hmm. consciousness and preoccupation. How has that consciousness of farming been a complement or a hindrance to your writing process? Um, sometimes writing has to be put second because I, uh, anyone who farms is confronted occasionally by emergencies, livestock in the road or uh, a difficult birth or something of that sort. I have uh, tried to devote half of every day to each And uh, that has sometimes been possible, not not invariably. (laughs) You said at um, some of the lectures during the patent lecture series here at Indiana University that you were writing historical fiction about your own life. That's true. How does that feel? Well, it feels, um, I I suppose, like... uh, Great historical changes must always feel when they happen within one person's life. But the change that I've been talking about is that uh, up until the uh, end of the Second World War, the life that I experienced in in my part of the country and on the farms I visited and played on and worked on. Our life was predominantly creaturely. And uh, after the war, uh, it became uh, dominantly and increasingly mechanical. And uh, I think the change from a creaturely life to a mechanical life is is a profound change, and in many ways it has been devastating, not to me, but to the country itself. Can you talk a little bit more about the effects of moving from a life that was dependent on working with animals to a life that is dependent on machines in terms of communities, small communities? Well, we've tried uh, in the sciences and in other ways to understand the creatures as machines. But I think that's a failure. There is no real resemblance between uh, creatures and machines, and there is no resemblance between the relationship that a person has with a machine and the relationship that one has with an an animal, uh, particularly a working animal. Uh, draft animals or working dogs or, or hunting dogs for that matter so it's a, a, a it really is a uh, radically different order of life a radical difference between the order of a life oriented to creatures and a life oriented to machines i think it's in hannah coulter um that you, or Hannah rather, and Hannah's voice is the narrator, she speaks about 
the difference between before the war that people were dependent on each other in the community. And once machines came into being, they had to look outside in order to be able to subsist. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about the changes on communities that that difference in focus has Well, there is a vast difference from a life drawn from the ground underfoot, so to speak, and a life that is drawn from distant sources that are difficult or impossible to know and take responsibility for. So what we've uh, done because of cheap fossil fuel and uh, therefore cheap long-distance transportation is uh, to substitute a life that was... um, economically intimate uh, with its uh, coming from known sources uh, to a life that is uh, commercial and uh, remote from its sources and therefore in a fundamental way ignorant and unfeeling. Talk a little bit more about the notion of economic intimacy, if you would. I grew up among people uh, who who did shop in uh, stores for uh, coffee and seasonings and um, bananas, maybe, uh, but who lived largely from their own land. And uh, when you've done this over a period of time, especially from the persp- when you have the perspective of a changed time, you realize that living from your own place, eating food from your own place, makes you uh, one flesh, so to speak, with that place. You are made of your place. So as men and women become one flesh in in marriage, as the the Bible says, so people who live from their own land become one flesh with their their home landscape. And uh, this, insofar as it's conscious, uh, is uh, profoundly intimate. You use the phrase, so far as it's conscious. How do we, at this point in time, make that more conscious for people who are no longer living on the land? Well, in the uh, days before cheap long-distance transportation, when a subsistence economy really was the backbone of of, uh, family and community life, it was pretty much taken for granted. People had never done Uh, in um, uh, racial memory, had never done differently. Uh, So it becomes conscious, to some extent, because it has become rare. It's now again becoming less rare. But the poet Yeats said somewhere uh, that things reveal themselves going away. And for some of us, as we began to lose the old uh, way of rural life, uh, 
what it had been became vividly uh, clear to us, what it was that we were were losing. And then the ones of us who have tried to remain faithful to that old way, it has been conscious in a way that it wasn't before. Would you rather have written about other things if the times had not forced your hand? Or do you feel that the times forced your hand? Well, the, uh, the time, of course, does force our hand. The time gives us our agenda. If we're going to be uh, dutiful patriots and community members, family members, uh, the time sets the agenda. And um, a part of my obligation as a writer has been to write about uh, the um, about the deterioration of the country itself, as distinct from its economy and its government, the um, loss of soil by erosion and um, the increasing toxicity of soil and water and uh, the accompanying destruction of the rural population and the uh, cultures of husbandry as the people have increasingly been replaced by machines and uh, chemicals. So that... We're now confronting um, failures in land use and land conservation that are simply undeniable as a result of uh, uh, chemical agriculture in the Mississippi uh, watershed. We have a huge dead zone, one of hundreds internationally, in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so these things can no longer be denied. And uh, uh, what we now desperately need is a conversation about land use in which we consider all the, th- the things of concern, not just food production, not just pr- the production of timber, but how you maintain uh, the sources in good health. And among those sources, of course, is the sort of human culture that I've called uh, the culture of husbandry, or the many cultures of husbandry. How is the best way to use this place? And how uh, do the users uh, maintain it in use? You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter, and our guest is Wendell Berry. We're going to listen to The Dark Around Us from Hymnody of Earth. Lyrics by Wendell Berry. Music by Malcolm Dalglish.
We've been listening to The Dark Around Us from the song cycle, Hymnody of Earth, lyrics by Wendell Berry, music by Malcolm Doglish. Can you tell me a little bit more about the culture of husbandry? Um, What are the characteristics that you must consider if you're going to be a part of that culture and consider it? Well, as opposed to the industrial economy, the um, agrarian economy uh, it would be an economy that um, developed from the land up. Uh, the, an agrarian economy would acknowledge the inescapable dependence of the human population and the human economy upon the uh, land and the resources of the land. The economy we have now uh, doesn't consider that uh, foundation at all. Um, I've made a sort of um, hobby, I guess, of reading the uh, the economists in their newspaper columns and articles and magazines like the New York Review of Books, waiting for an economist to acknowledge the land economy. And I've never seen that happen. Maybe it has happened and I missed it. (laughs) But the preoccupation of uh, economics, as as, uh, conventionally understood now, is with finance, with the money economy. And, of course, uh, the money economy is now badly in disarray. And I think that one of the reasons is that uh, the uh, the money system is a a system of symbols. It's a symbolic Mm -hmm. system. And if you have symbols that don't reliably and stably uh, represent things of real value, then you're in trouble. So... Uh, we can devalue the dollar, for instance, without respect to the things of value that the dollar stands for. Uh, we we can have um, great fluctuation in the price of land or the price of food, uh, but the real measure of the value of land and food is Uh, determined by imagining ourselves without them. And uh, to propose that we might be without land or without food is to see very quickly that uh, they have an ultimate value uh, that doesn't fluctuate, that those things serve a need that is constant and therefore, uh, in reality, have a constant value. So if you have a money economy that's fluctuating in value around those things, the tendency is uh, the economic destruction uh, or the destruction by the economy 
of its own real basis. In um, your book of essays, What Matters, in the opening essay, Money Versus Goods, Mm -hmm. you also talk about the resources of culture and um, the phrase accurate local memory being one of those resources as well as a truthful accounting. And I think you're talking a bit about that as well. How do we in this day and age being this is where we are, how do we educate our youth especially to the notion of accurate memory, truthful accounting, and some of the other cultural resources you talk about? Well, to speak of these as cultural resources is to reveal uh, our need to renew our vocabulary with which we speak of our life and uh, our um, hopes, what we call the quality of, of life. Culture is an interesting word because of its recent history. We've allowed it to mean uh, only uh, the things of so-called high culture, symphonies and symphony uh, uh, orchestras and art galleries and libraries. But culture actually has to refer to the whole body of knowledge that teaches us how to live responsibly in our places. Uh, So the the term has a broader reference and a much greater importance than we customarily uh, assign to it. It's, uh, and we've done the same thing with the word art, as if art is a product only of uh, painters, poets, and, and uh, musicians, uh, when art really means, really refers to any way of doing And so the real question is not whether uh, the making of a thing is art, only art makes things, but whether it's a good way and whether the product is a good or not, whether the product is a good product. Um, You've often talked about the complexities of memory, history, and imagination, and that we have a responsibility to construct history in order to better understand it. Could you speak a little bit more about that, especially in the context you've just been talking about? Well, uh, we deal um, with history frequently um, in terms of its uh, culmination in actions by governments or armies. But in reality, history begins in in people's lives and in all the places in which people live. So one of the necessities of an accurate and serviceable sense of history uh, is local memory, personal memory. Um, And these have to do not just with the stories that uh, entertain or instruct us about the past, but uh, with memories of what works and what doesn't in this place. So we 
live in history, which uh, is in some sense an artifact. We construct our sense of history, but in another sense, we make our history by uh, living in time and leaving memories and significant marks behind us. So, from my point of view, uh, something radical has happened to a community or a neighborhood or a family when people begin to tell each other stories of what they've seen on television rather than the stories that have been handed down from one generation to another. Um, in your, especially in your novels, when I am reading, I find the prose both simultaneously restful but provocative at the same time. Um, there's a tension, I think, always. Is that something that's intentional when you're writing, to capture some of the issues we're talking about? or I don't think so because uh, I wouldn't have described it that way because that's not the way I, f I feel it. To the extent that I look back on my work, I look back on it as uh, as uh, the record of an effort that I've made uh, with varying success. So I have really no way of knowing how it might be felt by by a reader who's uh, unfamiliar with my own effort of consciousness and art as it has been involved in the making of a novel. You work in poetry, you work in novels, short story, essays. Do you work differently in each of those forms? Does your process change? Well, the forms, the genres, are tools. And uh, like tools, they're useful for, for different things. And so, of course, to some degree, you work differently with different tools, but that's a rather mechanical way of talking about it. There are just jobs needing to be done that require different different tools, and um, so I suppose I do look at it in a rather practical or mechanical way. Um. I want to go back to a moment for to the notion of history and, and memory. Um, I was recently rereading The Early Travels of Andy Catlett, mm -hmm. and I was struck by something I hadn't noticed before, that at some point he pauses and he reflects on race and race issues and begins, mm -hmm. I think, to conceptualize and understand mm -hmm. that different people had access to different opportunities depending on their race. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about race and history? Of course, my history in, involves race. I was born um, under the rule of what we came to call segregation. I don't remember hearing it called that by anybody at the time, but but there it was. And uh, it was f fairly largely taken for granted, but um, it, it did involve injustices that have to be reckoned with. But I think there are two difficulties in, in writing about 
racial issues, and I've gone back to it a number of times in fiction and also in a book specifically about racism called The Hidden Wound. One of the difficulties is that the stereotypes largely fail us in so far as the two races have known each other, and the members of the two races have known each other, uh, the stereotypes don't work under the heading of race any more than the stereotypes work under the heading of sex or gender or the, any anything else. Because uh, we don't live in general. We live in particular our lives. And uh, the other problem in writing about race is that since you one is likely to belong to only one race, uh, there is a one-sidedness uh, in your experience and your thoughts about it that has to be acknowledged and dealt with. So uh, there has to be a kind of courtesy and a kind of generosity involved that uh, becomes a writing problem, and and in my experience, not an easy one to to deal with. What we we have across these divisions, and we have to choose whether to reach across those divisions um, contentiously and aggressively in some way. Or we have to reach across in generosity and and uh, some kind of courtesy. And and the motive, of course, would be the awareness that ought to be forming in the uh, writing itself that your point of view, your experience, your knowledge are all limited. And therefore... Uh, it's appropriate that there should be people on the other side that are speaking back to you. Um, in um, many of your books, you talk about the membership. I think it's Burley Coulter, the mm. character that coins the phrase mm-hmm. being part of the membership, um, which seems to extend to all folks in the area, whether they're tenants, owners, white, black, mm. um how did that membership work? <laughs> well, Burley Coulter's um, statement about membership is, uh, I think, a kind of an improvement on on St. Paul's idea, uh, referring to the church, the early church, that uh, we are members of one another. Uh, Burley says uh, he, he takes a bit larger view of the matter and what he says is, uh, we're members of each other, all of us, everything. The difference is not whether you are or are not, but whether you know you are or not. Uh, this can be learned from the ecologists who are teaching us that, trying to teach us that, or it can be learned from life in a local community that the uh, people who refuse to acknowledge or enact their membership are nevertheless members. Uh, the good members are members 
but also are the bad members because we are all under each other's influence. Uh, we all are affected by one another's lives and decisions, and uh, there is no escape from this membership. So one of the um, uh, issues that I have uh, addressed in my fiction, which carries it, I think, a little apart from uh, uh, conventional realism, uh, the question of, of uh, how do people act toward each other who are conscious of being members one of another. Um, you're listening to Profiles on your public radio station, WFIU. This is Shauna Ritter, your host, and our guest is Wendell Berry. We're going to listen to Over the River from the song cycle Hymnity of Earth by Malcolm Daglish. Lyrics by Wendell Berry. We were listening to Over the River from the song cycle Hymnody of Earth by Malcolm Doglesh, lyrics by Wendell Berry. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Um, would you read two short poems of yours for me, please? Sure. I'll read this very short one. A bird the size of a leaf fills the whole lucid evening with his note and flies. And then this a little longer, a little later, when I'm a little older. The question before me, now that I am old, 
is not how to be dead, which I know from enough practice, but how to be alive, as these worn hills still tell, and some paintings of Paul Cezanne, and this mere singing wren, who thinks he's alive forever, this instant, and may be. How do you take that notion of local belonging and being conscious about Mm -hmm. belonging to a place and a community and also apply it to a global comprehension and understanding that we're all part of a world, to be both simultaneously focused on the local and aware of the global? Of course, you necessarily, being a limited creature with limited intelligence— can be more fully and particularly and responsibly aware of your own place, your own community, than you can be aware of the globe. The way it works, as I understand it, is that if you understand your own place and its intricacy— and uh, the possibility of affection and good care of it, then, imaginatively, you recognize that possibility for other places and other people. So that if you wish well to your own place, and you recognize that your own place is a part of the world then this requires a well-wishing toward the the whole world. Uh, in return, you hope for the world's well-wishing toward your place. And this is a, a different uh, impulse from the impulse of nationalism. This is what I would call patriotism, the love of, of a home country that's usually much smaller than a nation. Uh, Nationalism always implies competition, always the wish that your nation uh, might thrive even at the expense of other nations. Uh, The patriotism that is the love of a home place or a home country recognizes the obligation of charity toward other places and other people. And it recognizes that the prosperity of your place need not come at the expense of the prosperity of other places. So there is a a generosity in what I think is the true charity in what I recognize as the true patriotism, which is not necessarily implied by nationalism. And that charity comes from caridad, which is the root of caring, not the root of just throwing money at something. That's right. And uh, it, the charity, as I think charity always does, comes from imagination. The ability, first of all, to imagine your own life in its fullness and then the uh, ability to recognize other people's lives in something like their fullness and and uh, preciousness. 
so that from that imagination comes uh, sympathy and charity and fellow feeling. Was it William Carlos Williams who said the only true universal is the local? To elaborate a little bit on that idea, the local uh, fulfilled and competently fulfilled in poetry, for instance, uh, may have a universal uh, value or application. Now, that's different from the uh, scientific industrial commercial idea of the universal solution. It simply, it, it means n- not that the um, integrity and coherence and, and uh, specific value and identity of this community will be exactly like that of another community or would be exactly a model for another community. It simply means that this kind of coherence and integrity uh, is exemplary in that it might inspire or justify or or authenticate in the mind or in the imagination the uh, integrity and coherence and uh, particular value of another community mm-hmm. or another place. Um, in Bloomington, currently, there's a growing attention to sustainability. We're having a semester on sustainability. Mm-hmm. Our farmer's market is a thriving right. uh, local growing market. What do you think the role of a large university like Indiana University and a university town like Bloomington is in um, helping to create a sustainable world? Well, to have a sustainable Bloomington, Bloomington has to begin to think conservingly and uh, with concern for what I would call its tributary landscape the surrounding communities and counties uh, that would have to um, to sustain Bloomington uh, send in their products. So it returns us to an old idea. Um, I know it was a, one of the old Greek ideas of the of the city consisted of the. Um, what we would call the downtown or the the city itself, plus its tributary landscape. And in fact, in the old Greek cities, uh, grain from the landscape would mm-hmm. be stored in towns and cities. So there has to be, all over the country, a conversation between uh, urban consumers and uh, rural producers, and this means that we're developing something new for us, and that is uh, a kind of a consumer or urban agrarianism. And um, what a a school does to contribute to that, and mostly the education system is not doing it from uh, first to last is uh, helping people, giving people the means 
of knowing where they are, not just within the network of, of uh, public roads, but within the uh, local watershed and within the local uh, sustaining uh, ecosystem so that if we're going to to have sustainable cities, uh, then we're going to have to have people who are of a lot more knowledgeable than they now are about the network of living creatures and and non-living creatures uh, that is uh, life-sustaining. Living creatures plus rainfall, plus the flow of water and the storing of water in the watershed, plus the rocks. (laughs) How do we move the knowledge of that that takes place so often in research labs and academic understanding and academic journals to the everyday practice of understanding our relationship to where we live. We're going to have to have um, a better effort than we've had so far on the part of the uh, specialties to speak to each other and to speak to their neighbors in a comprehensible language, a common tongue. Uh, we've encouraged, by way of uh, specialization of the disciplines, and then by the professionalization of the disciplines, the idea that each one could be isolated and somehow do its responsible part in the life of the human polity by being specialized. Uh, but... Uh, there is this other obligation of membership in the local community, not not community as we frequently use it as a figure of speech, but the the local community, uh, which is a community in the sense of holding in common the place and its creatures and uh, its uh, common neighborliness, its common sharing of the fundamental goods, such as air, water, food, shelter, clothing. As you're talking about that notion of community membership, I keep returning to some of the scenes in Hannah Coulter, which I think really portrays a community at work together in the time mm-hmm. um, before the changeover into mechanization. And there's one scene that's always sort of haunted me in, in, in Hannah Coulter. And it's, I believe it's Christmas Day. And after sort of a perfect day of the family and um, friends being together, they can't find Andy mm-hmm. Caplet, um, mm-hmm. who comes again and again in, mm-hmm. in your stories. And um, Andy's off by himself in the dining room, I think, sitting in a chair crying. Mm-hmm. My heart just pours out for him. And I always wanted to ask you about that. That's the Christmas after Pearl Harbor. And although the family has um, conscientiously made it a a happy Christmas for children and all that, he's caught out of the air, as children do catch things out of the air. The threat, both the goodness of that family gathered together 
and the threat to it. And it's made him sad. Do you think in the same way that World War II was a fulcrum during your lifetime that for our children, uh, 9-11-2001 was a fulcrum for their lifetime? Of course, it's hard. It's hard for somebody my age to guess what the young people now are going to find most significant in the sense of most changing in their own life and experience. What we have lost, and I'm sure that the children are are going to feel this, is uh, the um, sense of a kind of security. Uh, It was hard to be a child during my childhood and not pick up a sense of of, uh, national righteousness, of uh, national security. We had not been invaded we had, as we never tired of saying, lost a war, although the South, of course, did. I remember particularly the pride with which we boys in school, in our constant discussion of the war, that is to say in the grades, uh, how proud we were that our country didn't torture its prisoners. So we've lost not only a sense of national security and uh, uniqueness in various ways, but a sense of uh, the loss of national righteousness. The idea not only that we have now had an official policy of torture, but that we now have among us a number of what we call them technicians, who are willing to administer torture to other people is a rather daunting thing to know. And I think that it will affect the young people. I've heard you say that you're not an optimist, but you are hopeful. Yes. What are you hopeful about? When I finally did uh, settle in my own home country to live, uh, I suppose you could say without oversimplifying too much, that I understood uh, the necessity uh, of becoming a critic. And um, I could see that from the point of view, say, of my little community, industrial agriculture was running a debit column that wasn't being acknowledged. And uh, so I became a, a critic of, in, of industrial agriculture. But you can't be a critic simply by being a griper and collecting instances of uh, things that uh, seem to demand griping about. Uh, one has also to be a proper critic to search out the examples of good work, good land use, of simple uh, goodness uh, that can give you some kind of standard of judgment along with the ecological health that is also an inescapable 
standard of judgment. So we can say we have uh, two standards. One is the health of the human community, and the other is the health of the natural community. My work as an essayist, as a, a writer about agriculture and, a, and an agricultural critic, which is in some ways simply to be a cultural critic, uh, has involved looking about for examples of good work, of good farming and good forestry. And uh, I have found enough examples to know that uh, good work is possible. And uh, I think that uh, there is an increasing number of people who know this too, who are familiar with examples of, of good work. And this is the inevitable source of, of hope. And also, I think I've, in my own life, uh, given myself some reasons to hope. My own determination to do without most electronic equipment, because I know that it can be done without. And uh, I think it's likely that we're going to have to go without a number of things that we've been taught to think of as necessities. So uh, the ability to change yourself and the um, finding of worthy examples are the two sources of, of hope insofar as I understand hope and its reasons. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with poet, essayist, and farmer Wendell Berry. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, too. <laughs> We're going to listen to The Wild Geese, lyrics by Wendell Berry, from the song cycle Hymnody of Earth by Malcolm Doglish. This is Shauna Ritter for Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in November of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. 
Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.